Messianic Psalms, what we call Messianic Psalms. Uh, some are more Messianic than others. They uh, you have, you know, your direct reference to the Messiah. Uh, psalm 107 kind of alludes to the Messiah. So some would call this a Messianic Psalm. Some wouldn't necessarily. But uh, you're going to see why I, I'm calling it a Messianic Psalm as we work our way through it. We don't know for sure who wrote Psalm 107, but some think it was, was David. <clears throat> yeah, it was evidently written sometime after the Babylonian exile. Most of the commentators pretty much agree on that. Uh, it really amounts to kind of an overview of Israel's history with, with a couple of major foreshadowings of the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 107 is a song about the, the proneness of human wandering and God's deliverance. Uh, some have titled it God to the Rescue. God to the Rescue, which is kind of the story of humanity, uh, saved humanity for sure. Uh, it emphasizes God's inexhaustible mercy uh, in restoring his people when they come to him in repentance. There are four different pictures uh, that are pictures or profiles uh, that are brought out in the psalm that not only apply to Israel, I think first and foremost to Israel, but also have application generally regarding human fallenness and God's deliverance for those who call on him. Uh, the four pictures, uh, this is a quote from David uh, Gazik. The four pictures show that everyone's story is different, and yet everyone's story is the same. I kind of like that, right? Everyone's story is different, and yet everyone's story is the same. Yeah, there, there's some truth in that. Well, how glorious it is that God is faithful to deliver those who call on him. Uh, note the outline on the overhead there. Uh, theme, the faithful God of deliverance, really, as you're looking at the, the psalm as a whole. Uh, and then, uh, let the redeemed give thanks. That's the opening there, first three verses. Four different pictures that I've talked about. Those who wander in barren places, those who sat in darkness, those who suffered their own folly, those who experienced sea storms. Uh, and then, the sovereign Lord of reversals, and the wise will observe these things. So, that's kind of an overarching uh, look at the psalm. Each uh, one of the four pictures kind of follows the same basic sequence. Uh, number one, man's predicament. Number two, man's petition. Number three, God's deliverance. And number four, thanksgiving to God. Okay, well, let's pick it up. Let's start here. Verses one through three, let the redeemed give thanks. Verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Verse one sounds the theme for the entire psalm, God is to be thanked for being a delivering God, specifically stated here in terms of him being good, uh, for the f and for the fact that his mercy endures forever. God is ever good. He is wholesome. He is right. He is lovingly benevolent. The word mercy is that rich Hebrew word hesed. Uh, it, it's a major word. In the psalm, in this particular psalm, and in the book of Psalms. Uh, it's often translated as goodness or loving kindness. It's found 248 times in the Old Testament. And it's been called an undefinable word. Uh, the King James translators initially translated it 14 different ways. You, you know, that's complicated when you're translating something 14. I don't know how you can hardly do that with a word, but they did. And they eventually ended up, for the most part, with the compound word, loving kindness. It's often translated as steadfast love, loyal love, or covenant love. 
Hesed is a combination of faithfulness and mercy. You know, I'm so glad that God, you know, doesn't change. He's, he's always ready to extend mercy. Uh, whoever comes to him will, will receive it. But you have to come. But he's, he's, he's an unchanging God of faithfulness and mercy. Uh, Hesed denotes un, undeserved kindness. Uh, this is a word that seeks to express the multifaceted nature of God's really indescribable grace. Uh, if you're saying, well, where's you know, grace in the Old Testament? It's there, lots of different places, but I think it's in the word hesed. Uh, hesed certainly emphasizes God's persistent, unconditional love that never stops caring for his people, in spite of their weaknesses. It underscores tenderness, compassion, kindness, and mercy that just won't quit. Above all, it underscores God's unfailing faithfulness. Okay, uh, let's pick it up here then at verse 2. Truly God is to be thanked for the kind of God that he is. He is good and he is everlastingly faithful in showing mercy. Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. The basic idea of redeemed is delivered. Delivered. The redeemed are the delivered. Often, you know, we associate with uh, being delivered by paying a price. Um, but the redeemed have been delivered by the Lord. And they ought to say so. Did you catch that? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We ought to say so. Speak up. Uh, it's wrong to be silent about God's great deliverance. You know, I think there's sins of omission. Sins of commission, but omission. Uh, sometimes... You know, just being silent. Let, let the redeemed the Lord say so. Let, let, let us say how he has delivered us. We ought to be thankful. And we ought to testify to what God has done for us. Now, when it talks about uh, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, uh, many believe that the writer may well have in view God's deliverance of his people Israel from the Babylonian captivity. But again, has application to our deliverance from the bondage of sin and Satan. But continuing on, verse 3 says, And gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. The language here would ultimately seem to look forward to Israel's ultimate deliverance when he will gather repentant Israel from the four corners of the earth and restore them back to the land of promise forever. But the history of Israel in many ways uh, foreshadows this coming ultimate deliverance as illustrated in four pictures that are now given in verses 4 through 32. So let's pick it up with the first picture uh, found in verses 4 through 9, those who have wandered in barren places. Verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. The first picture here seems to depict Israel's 40 years of desolate wandering in the wilderness as they were on their way to the promised land. Uh, along the way, they experienced hunger and thirst. And in their plight, they cried out to God. And, and what did God do? He delivered them. 
He brought them out of their distress. And then he led them on their way towards the promised land, ultimately the the dwelling place that God had uh, prepared for them. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. He brought them through it. Terrible time. Hungering and thirsting along the way and all the things that they faced. And yet God brought them through it. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men because he satisfies the longing soul. He meets our needs. Satisfaction is found ultimately only in God. In our desperate plight, we cry out to God and then he answers. And when he answers, we should be careful to thank him for his goodness and his wonderful works. Picture number two, those who sat in darkness, verses 10 through 16. Verse 10 Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in afflictions and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help them. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Now, the waywardness of the people often found them in in the bondage of darkness and in the shadow of death, as it were. This second picture here is thought to depict Israel's history in in the context of the Babylonian captivity. It was a miserable, like, prison experience, uh, language of in the shadow of of death, uh, with no one to help them. I mean, nobody could get them out of this dilemma. No one to help them. Again, they cried out to the Lord, and he saved them out of their distresses, bringing them out of the bondage. Now, one reason we think this is talking about the Babylonian captivity is because Isaiah 45, 22 rather verse 2, Isaiah 45, 2, uses this very exact same language showing how Cyrus would deliver the children of Israel from the oppression in the Babylonian captivity using the language of the gates of bronze and the bars of iron. Again, referring to the the Babylonian captivity. Note there, Isaiah 45, verse 2, I will go before you and make crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. The context there is clearly related to the Babylonian captivity and the deliverance that God was going to bring through King Cyrus. And what is the called for appropriate response? Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You can see there's kind of an Israeli theme all the way through here. Third picture. Those who suffered their their own folly, verses 17 through 22, verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. I mean, brought it on themselves. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. The occasion here is indefinite. However, some think it may well have in view the condition of Israel uh, during the time of Christ's first coming. 
Uh, the nation was not spiritually well. Yes, there was a godly remnant that was looking for deliverance. But into that context, uh, God sent his word. Notice verse 20 there. He sent his word and healed them. Uh, that's why some think this may, there may be a foreshadowing of the Messiah here. Uh, he was the Word. I mean, a title for Jesus is the Word. And he often healed with the Word, with a Word. Uh, many times in the Gospel, we read that Jesus healed them all, uh, such as we find in Matthew chapter 8. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Healed all. Cast demons out with a word. Whatever the exact occasion, God is to be thanked for his healing mercies and for his goodness and wonderful works to the children of men. But where I really want to camp tonight is on the fourth portrait here, this fourth picture, number four, those who experience sea storms, verses 23 through 32. Uh, right here, I think we have a clear intersect with the ministry of Christ. You understand Christ's ministry was very unique. Uh, whereas the apostles were also empowered to do healing miracles and, and empowered to cast out demons, only Jesus did miracles over nature. Uh, this is uniquely God's domain, with, with rare exception, where Satan maybe a few times is granted power to do a little something in relationship to nature on a, on a, a relatively minor level, relatively speaking. But notice verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord, and his wonders in the deep. You see, the sea is a, is a really big reality, isn't it? I mean, don't you like to go to the sea? It just kind of reminds you of God. It's kind of like going to the mountains. Awesome. Wow. And it just makes you think of the grandeur of, of how great God must be, the creator of all of this. Uh, only a big God with awesome power can control the sea. Uh, God is in control of nature. He's ultimately in charge of storms. Uh, they are called here the works of the Lord. Now, puny man uh, with a big ego uh, thinks that he's in charge of the weather somehow. Or, or should be. You know, let's change the climate, folks. It's just the most ridiculous thing. Well, I think puny man with a big ego is about to be humbled in the day of the Lord. He, he just doesn't know it. Uh, they are making plans like they're going to be around indefinitely, uh, not realizing the world really is on a collision course with Judgment Day. And if, you, if you're concerned about global warming, oh, so concerned, lose sleep over it. If you're so concerned about it, you really should read book, the book of Revelation. You, you know, we read things like this in the book of Revelation. You know, people don't take it seriously, but, you know... Uh, you get through the, the seal, the trumpets, and you start into the trumpet judgments. Uh, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Can't imagine. Can't imagine. You talk about a scorched earth experience. This will be it. Uh, God is in control of nature. 
He's in control of the weather. In this case, he's in control of, of the judgment that he's going to bring on the world. And I really think it's, it's blasphemy to really speak of Mother Nature when, in fact, Father God's in charge. Uh, notice what God does. Verse 25, he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. Who does this? Well, God does. He commands the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. This is God's doing. Verse 26, they, speaking of the waves, mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. You know, I never, ever want to be out on the ocean in this kind of experience. It makes me scared just, just reading it. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. I've never been in an experience like this. I was talking to Mac Jr. one day, and he was telling me how he was out in a storm like this. It was unbelievable. I mean, the guys were f- flying around like, you know, just all over the place, and it, uh, the description was unbelievable. It's like, oh, my goodness. Uh, you just can't imagine it. can't fathom it. Like it says, they're at their wit's end. Those out in, in, at sea in the midst of a storm, uh, if you're in a really bad storm, know this experience. Again, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, we, we have pictures and this kind of thing, but, you know, imagine seeing those waves. They go up to the heavens, like he says, and they come crashing down and that boat's rocking all over and the waves are coming over. Oh, my goodness! I'm telling you, you're going to probably pray! Help! Desperately in trouble. Can't imagine it. Verse 28. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. I, I can only imagine. And he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. In their peril, they cry out to the Lord. This is Yahweh. He brings them out of it. He, the Lord, calms the storm, stills the waves. Again, this is the activity of God. Verse 24 calls it the works of the Lord. Verse 28, 29, it is the Lord in response to their cry that calms the storm. God is in charge of the storm. Now this has Jesus' name written all over it. You see, no other human in the history of the world ever did this. Except for Jesus. This is God's stuff. This is his territory alone. We read, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. Here you go. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing! We're going to die! And he said to them, why are are you fearful, oh, you of little faith? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I'm there. You say, well, I wouldn't be afraid. Oh, okay. Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, glassy calm. I mean, to where they were perishing, the waves are coming over the ship. Glassy calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be? 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. I've got an answer. Psalm 107. This is the works of the Lord. This is the Lord who responds to the desperate plight of those who cry to him in the, in the storm on the sea. He is the Lord, the one who calms the storm so that the waves are still. Only Jesus ever did such a thing. Who can this be? Only the Lord himself in a human body. Verse 30, then they are glad. <laughs> Unbelievable. They're ready to, wow. Uh, then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and, and praise him in the company of the elders. Then those who are delivered are glad as he guides them to their destination. And they are called upon to give thanks. God is greatly to be exalted and publicly worshipped for his acts of deliverance. I mean, you get back from the, from the coast, maybe you want to go to church. Maybe you want to go to synagogue. Maybe you want to go somewhere. Praise God for what he's done for you. Now, you know, we've been delivered from so much more than a great storm. We've been delivered from an eternal hell. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Note the huge emphasis on thanksgiving all the way through for what God and his loving kindness does for his people. You've seen this, right? Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Verse 8, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. Verse 15, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. Verse 21, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. Verse 22, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Verse 31, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. What do you think our response should be? Yeah, amen. We ought to say thank you, Lord. That is for sure. This is the appropriate response from his people whom he has delivered. We should constantly worship God with thanksgiving. I mean, after, what can we really give to God? People talk about giving to God. Uh, what can you give to God that he hasn't first given to you? Well, the answer is nothing, ultimately. Even giving thanks, he gives you breath to be able to do it, right? But we ought to give thanks as a matter of worship. It's really a key thing before God. You know, the pagans, they and their depravity, th th this is a problem. Romans chapter 1 because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Unthankfulness, one of the main symptoms of depravity, became futile in their thoughts. Foolish hearts were darkened. They're not thankful. They don't recognize God. I mean, for the atheist, Thanksgiving's a really bad holiday. I mean, you don't have anybody to thank. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, Paul says to us believers. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I've often thought that people should be able to tell we are Christians simply by our attitude of gratitude, which should really permeate our whole life. You know, this was in my, when my folks passed away, I, I, we, we took all their stuff, you know, that's what you do. And one of the things I snatched before any of my siblings could get it was out of their garage. <laughs> no whining. And I put it in my study. If you come into my study at home, 
You know, I got an office here and I got a study at home, but in my study, I've got no whining. So if you come into my territory, no, no whining here. And you know who the first person to see that every day is? Yours truly. <laughs> it's to me first and foremost. Well, to wrap up the psalm, the writer now paints with a big, broad brush, showing that God is sovereign over history. He can turn good times into bad times, or he can turn bad times into good times. He's in charge of what happens. So, verses 33 through 42, the sovereign Lord of reversals. You know, God's in the business of turning the tables. He can change things, and he can do it in a hurry. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a wilderness, and water springs into dry ground. He can make a desert out of, you know, this fertile, lush land. A fruitful land into barrenness for the, for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He's doing this as a matter of judgment. So God can providentially turn rivers into a wilderness, fruitful land into wasteland of barrenness in an act of judgment. I mean, if you mock the rainmaker, maybe he won't, he'll shut off the rain. Don't be surprised. On the other hand, verse 35, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place. And so fields and plant vineyards, that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them, and they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. So God has the power to turn things around from destitution to prosperity, and thus bless those who are right with him. In the Old Testament, we see this recurring theme that he blesses obedience and he curses disobedience, brings judgment on wickedness. And God has a way of, of, of in due time, dealing with wicked leaders. Verse 40, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. The idea of a prince is that of a ruler. Those leaders responsible for afflicting God's people should especially be on notice. God pours contempt on them, causing them to lose all respect, all honor. God causes them to wander in a total wasteland experience where it's miserable. Wicked leaders are kind of like a, a mad junkyard dog that is vicious, all right, but he's on a chain. And God's got the chain. He can only go so far. And then he reels him in. And they're headed for contempt and ultimately waste. David Gazik says, in the same way that God can turn a river into a dry wilderness, he can take princes of this world and bring them low, causing them to wander in the wilderness. This is especially true of those rulers who subject God's people under oppression, affliction, and sorrow. In contrast, verse 41, yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice. And all iniquity stops its mouth. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. All iniquity stops its mouth. You know, iniquity has a big mouth right now. But God has the ability to stop it. When the righteous see God turn the tables, they rejoice. It's time to celebrate when God shuts the arrogant mouth of iniquity. That is sin. William MacDonald says, When good men see this, they are profoundly glad. When the ungodly see it, they don't have a word to say, which is unusual for them. 
Yeah, I got just a weird enough sense of humor to appreciate that little last line there that he says. And God will do so. It's just a matter of time. People brag about how they're going to tell God a thing or two when they see him. In reality, they're going to be as quiet as a stone. You know, uh, you have that lead into Isaiah 53, kind of giving a, a huge summary of the Messiah. But in Isaiah 52, 15, so shall he sprinkle, I think better startle, uh, so shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Their mouths are going to be shut. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And it will be a mouth shutter. Jim Elliot, heaven will at once be, eternity will at once be a great uh, eye opener and a great mouth shutter. One day God is going to stop the mouth of iniquity in its tracks. Eventually every mouth will be stopped. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, the writer then concludes the psalm with a wisdom principle. Verse verse 43. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. The wise realize that in due time, God will turn things around. The wise wait upon him to do so. You see, God's in charge of the fortunes of mankind. The tenure of the wicked is very limited. Eventually, it comes back on them. Eventually, God will turn things around. To where his people are in the position of prosperity. The wicked seemingly have their time where they have their way, but it's very limited. In contrast, when God reverses the role of his people and puts them in the position of forever blessed, it will stand forever. We are living for what lasts and what will endure forever. The wicked in their position of having the upper hand Only stand there for a moment. The wise will take this to heart and live accordingly. Now, when the psalmist in Psalm 73 thought about the prosperity of the wicked, it really bothered him. I mean, it seemed like everything went their way. Why live for God when, you know, these wicked people, they're just having everything go their way. But then he went into the presence of the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, he he got a different perspective. Psalm 73, 16 through 19. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. In a moment. The wise consider the end of the matter. God is in the business of great reversals. He can turn the river into a a barren wasteland, and he can turn the wasteland into plush, rich land of plenty. In his providence, he can turn things around. And eventually he will, because of his faithfulness, because of his enduring loving kindness. The wise will observe the ways of the Lord and understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Again, this word loving kindness is once again that rich Hebrew word hesed. The psalm began with this emphasis and it ends with this emphasis. And actually, it's found six times throughout the psalm, being translated as mercy, goodness, and loving kindness. Let me show you where it's seen here. 
Verse 1, his mercy, Hesed endures forever. Thanks be to the Lord for his goodness, Hesed. Again, 15, 21, 31, and then 43. Understand the loving kindness, the Hesed of the Lord. So it's found six times here. Moody Bible Commentary, God's loving kindness is everlasting. You know, I'm resting there. Uh, his faithfulness, uh, his mercy towards me, it's, it's going to carry me through, and you too as a believer. The Moody Bible Commentary says, this statement about God's loving kindness is, is everlasting. This statement is the most repeated qualification of praise in the book of Psalms. That's quite a statement. This statement is the most repeated qualification of praise in the book of Psalms. F.B. Meyer said, Consider the successive vignettes of this psalm. Love broods over the weary caravan that faints in the desert, visits the prisoner house with its captives, watches by our beds of pain, notices each lurch of the tempest-driven vessel, brings the weary hosts from the wilderness into the fruitful soil. Pretty good summary. Well, God in his faithfulness is ever loyal to deliver his people and in the end, their story is one of eternal deliverance. This is true both for Israel and for his covenant people, the church. He, in his loyal love, guarantees it. The wise will consider this. All things do work together for good for those that love him. The wise will consider this. The wise will see that right in the heart of this psalm, emphasizing God's Hesed deliverance, is the truth of the Messiah as seen in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ who controls the storms of life. You're in a storm? Just remember, Jesus is in charge of the storm. The painful riddle of this world finds its answer in Hesed, God's loyal covenant love that endures forever. The wise will observe these things and understand. God help us to be among them. Let's stand and have our closing song.